Welcome back. I am Kumar Vikram, your host of the show Random Readings with Kumar Vikram. Today is 30th November. It is also the birthday of Samuel Langhorne Clements, famously known as Mark Twain, who was described by William Faulkner as the father of American literature. On his birth anniversary today, I would be reading out an excerpt from a critical introduction to his uh, one of the classic novels, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, written by Professor Arun Kumar Senha. The book was published, this critical introduction was published with the text of the novel by Spectrum Books New Delhi in 2006. Before I proceed, I will briefly introduce the critic. Professor Arun Kumar Sinha, 1940-2011, retired as University Professor of English and Principal Langatsi College, BRA Bihar University, Muzaffarpur, after teaching literature for four decades, 1961 to 2000, to college and university students. Besides contributing some literary essays, he also worked on the poetry of Dylan Thomas and wrote a critical book on T.S. Eliot. He also translated a biography of eminent Hindi poet Ramdhari Siddhinkar for Sahitya Academy and he left an unpublished complete novel in English, which is under publication. So let's move on to this episode, which has got three segments and where I read out from the chapter, from the chapter, Jim as a possible hero. Thank you. Jim as the Possible Hero Pages 35-36 Minorities, religious, racial, linguistic and other such varieties are the unfavored children of the Mother Earth all over the world. But still, they have one singular value. They have usually been the testing ground of those who profess to be intellectuals, progressives radicals. To this profession, though not as vocal, the artists and philosophers also belong. In other words, all those who live and lead by the force and application of their imagination and ideas have stressed their energy to get not only bread for the marginalized sections, but also to work for an order that will, besides food, get them liberty for that is the key to a dignified human life. It is a testimony to Shakespeare's honesty and courage that in one of his plays he locked horns with the predicament of a prosperous Jewish merchant in the Christian majority town of Venice. Indeed, Sherlock is one of the most difficult characters ever taken up for treatment in a work of literature. Dr. Faustus, Walpurney, Iago, Hamlet, Seton in Paradise Lost, Heathcliff, 
and Estusia Y in Hardy's The Return of the Native. Each has an elaborate side to his or her personality which varies from egotistical, cynical, reflective, rebellious to sensual. The elaboration tests the writer's ability to establish a correspondence between his attitude and his art. But when the character's intractability issues from a complex of prejudice and the society of which he is a product, the task of the writer becomes unusually difficult and for the reader too it is not easy to respond coherently. A distorted social morality is very likely to cause distortion of form in a work. It may be said that Porcia's poetic speech on the quality of mercy wholly irrelevant to the legal matter of the moment is intended to offset the Christian's prejudice against Shylock. Arguably, Shakespeare stumbles throughout the trial scene in The Merchant of Venice. Really, Mark Twain is on a tricky ground in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn so far as his treatment of Jim the black slave is concerned before mark twain dared to test the slavery issue in the smithy of his conscience to use a phrase of james joyce in 1852 a pious little woman of evangelical upbringing harriet beecher stowe stirred to imagination by the exercise of the fugitive slave act wrote a novel called uncle tom's cabin Estov's book did more than anything else to turn a political campaign into a popular crusade. The Fugitive Slave Act, mooted by the Missouri Compromise of 1850, put into the hands of the federal government the hunting and restoration of runaway slaves. Estov's novel, rather sentimentally, attacked the provision of hunting down of fugitive slaves. In the background of Huckleberry Finn, a Stone's book, one of the most potent bestsellers of any age, stands out as a lighthouse. Twain grew up in the pro-slavery southern state of Missouri, which was not as notoriously inhuman in its treatment of the slaves or the niggers as their white owners were to them down south. pages 38 to 40 Jim's superstitions which demean his quest for freedom may be seen on two levels on one level they should be seen as the vitalizing elements of the folk mind on another level Jim's superstitions are like things painted on his consciousness like the Granger Ford's possessions quote the clock in the mantelpiece with a picture of a town painted on the bottom half of the glass front unquote a big outlandish parrot on each side of the clock painted up godly a cat made of crockery etc jim's superstitions are painted in the sense that these are racial vestiges external to the changeable negro mind 
as external as their black skin is to the human blood in their veins james omains which are too many are all external to his consciousness which has become suddenly dynamic these do not impede jim's practical wisdom and so he knows where his interest is his interest is in his gaining freedom not only mental but legal freedom too from slavery his interest lies in making himself economically independent and his reunion with his wife and children who should also be free the entire novel is full of the ramblings of discontent not only of the black slaves but also of the white population not the land holding whites but the poor whites who loaf about in the one horse arkansas towns to look at jim as a purely local color is to restrict the significance of his quest for freedom and to ignore the causes which have put him on the desperate course Huckleberry Finn is not a personality-oriented novel. It is easy to see in Huck the focal point or the nerve center of the novel, since he is in the triple role of participant, observer, and narrator. But such is the invisible design of the narrative that Huck's active participation becomes attenuated as soon as the Duke and the King virtually capture the raft. This happens before half of the novel is over and it is doubly effective. First, it helps in spreading the focus all around and secondly, it helps in setting Huck and Jim in a freer and more detached association with the things happening. Reduced formally from the triple role to the double role of the observer and narrator, Huck finds to his delight that to observe the duke and the king thinking of their roguish activities is an engagement not less active than leading from the front. The effect on Jim is also salutary. Having been free and in the open for long, he can now relax. He almost laughs his way out of the dungeon at the Phelps farm where Tom has a share of adventures at Huck's cost. A secret of the appeal of Huckleberry Finn as a novel is that it releases the characters as it progresses from the constraint of form so that the freedom which Huck and Jim are in quest of becomes an accomplished fact within the novel. A useful comparison can be made with O'Neill's Emperor Jones, which gives the status of a hero to a Negro and which was a big hit on the stage. O'Neill's interest in the Negro life coincided with the progressive era in the United States, 1911-1917, during which Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were presidents. Jones, a Negro fugitive, carves an empire for himself on an island in the West Indies with no white population on it. But he has become emperor by exploitation of the fellow Negroes. So fear stalks him and when Nemesis strikes, O'Neill's plays are a blend of the motives of the Greek tragedy and Freudian interpretation of human actions. Jones is filled with terror and thereafter his regression into primitivism reduces him to extreme self-humiliation. The beating of the drum, which is heard throughout the play, 
expresses it is an expressionist technique the psychological gaps in jones's violent rise to power and the inevitable fatal consequences therefrom nearly 40 years separate huckleberry finn from emperor jones but it appears that odile brings less understanding to the complicated social scenario in america mainly on account of its vast negro population for odile the negro mind where anger overlaps self pity and childlike innocence and has to contend with a savage urge for retaliation against the whites is more an object of technical experiment and no doubt emperor jones is one of the most success- successful experiments in expressionism jones is the hero and an emperor hero and his fall has the grandeur of that of oedipus in sophocles's plays whereas jim who is given more understanding more space and time to venture about and ponder is only a potential hero in twins novel yet jim has a better chance to grow on the reader's consciousness than jones the hero of the high-toned moral melodrama that emperor jones is huckleberry finn is in eloquently low-key throughout something which hemingway rarely manages despite his carefully cultivated unemotional prose pages 41 42 Jim has been hurt in his soul by Huck's adolescent prank but the restraint in his reply which could have been a rebuke or a retort almost makes him look heroic Jim may for some readers go beyond the middle level status of the potential hero if the last moment in the novel is considered it is when Huck is undecided about where he should go and what he should do after he learns that Miss Watson has set Jim free. Huck is at a loss because he is afraid that his father would again be as unmerciful as he was and more he must have drunk up the $6000 Huck had left with just Thatcher. After Tom Sawyer lets out that Huck's father has not returned to St Petersburg since the news of his that is Huck's death is spread and that the money with just Thatcher is intact Jim stuns as well as relieves Huck by revealing the sad secret of Pap's death. Co. Jim says kind of solemn he ain't coming back no no Huck I says Why Jim? Name me why. Hakbat ain't coming back no more. But I kept at him. So at last he says, "Don't you remember the the house that was floating down the river? And there was a man in that kivered up. In I went in and unkivered him. I didn't you didn't let you come in? Well then, you can get your money when he wants it because that was him unquote but huck keeps a straight bat $6000 waiting for him at st petersburg is only a mean provocation for him 
because more sinister provocations in the form of Widow Douglas and her civilizing Alfred are also waiting for him there. He will have none of it because he says that he had suffered the tricks of civilization enough before he can for freedom for the first time. He will not return to St. Petersburg. He holds the hero's ground till the end, but Jim too has got a fair share of Twain's dispassionate dispensation. By keeping the secret of Pap's death in his heart, he has lived the role of Huck's foster father to the hilt. He is, anyway, ready when the story of the quest for freedom is adjourned to be played in the territory ahead. That Jim endures and lives beyond the physical limits of the novel has been overlooked by Leo Marx in his essay, Mr. Elliot, Mr. Trailing, and Huckleberry Finn. His argument is that Jim, who has hitherto grown in dignity, is now made to demean himself and to play a passive role to Tom's shenanigans. Some critics have seen Miss Watson's decision to free Jim, whom she owned, as a totally unconvincing, unnecessary humanitarian gesture. Moreover, it denies Jim the psychological reward of his defiance of Miss Watson's right to own him. But Jim knows, and Huck knows too, that they have in, that they have endured till the last moment. When Tom Sawyer reports that Jim had already been set free by Miss Watson, it is dead news to them and to the reader. The reader may turn to William Faulkner, another novelist from the southern part of America. There is a Negro woman character, Disley, in his big novel, The Sound and the Fury. Disley is one of the most comprehensively drawn Negro characters in American novel. Faulkner, at one place, describes how much she has lost and retained over the years. Quote, she had been a big woman once, but now her skeleton rose as though muscle and tissue had been courage or fortitude which, she which the days or the years had consumed until the indomitable skeleton was left rising like a ruin or a landmark above the somnolent and imperious guts." Unquote. To look at the place which a minority character or person has in a work of literature or in society in isolation from majority characters or persons is bad criticism, obviously. One has to keep to the examination of how far the writer has brought out the human concern in a social scene, which is fraught with divisions and discriminations of various kinds. That was episode number five for you. Please do send in your inputs, your suggestions and your advices and do subscribe. Stay tuned. I will be back again. Thank you.